If you will, join with me this morning in turning to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and our reading is going to come from verses 8 through 18. Luke chapter 2, please follow along, beginning in verse 8 through verse 18. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the flock, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made it known, the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This ends the reading of God's word. May he write it on our hearts today. Father, as we come to your word now, how we pray that you would please work mightily among us and do that which only you can do. We pray that the Spirit would come now and lead us and guide us into the truth and be our teacher. We pray that we would see our blessed Lord Jesus as we've never seen him before. Please open our eyes and open our hearts and be glorified through the preaching of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've arrived here on the last Sunday of Advent, the last time we will gather before Christmas Day, this Friday. There's a lot on our minds, probably. It's a busy time of year, isn't it? It always is. Uh, Stacy and I try to do things every year to cut back on the busyness and to take some of the busyness out of it, and we've done pretty well with that. There's a lot of planning that, that can go into some uh, taking some of this busyness out, but even if you are a pagan and don't even celebrate Christmas, it's still busy, isn't it? The traffic is worse. The stores are more crowded. Uh, it just takes more time to do things. But we do celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the coming into the world of our Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I, I just want to ask you this morning, how does that make you feel? What does that mean to you? Let's just stop for a moment. I mean, everybody's just, I think our, our minds are swirling with activity from what's been going on and what is going to be going on this week. But let's just pause for a moment and contemplate the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ 
What does that mean to you? Many of us would say excitement. There's an excitement about this time of year, right? But again, people who don't even believe in Jesus are excited about parties and family gatherings and uh, their Christmas bonus check uh, or, and, and being off from work maybe for a day or two. What's different about our excitement? Well, I think that I could summarize it with one word, and that word is joy. Listen again to the words of the angel to the shepherds from verse 10. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Great joy. When we go back to Luke chapter 1 that Brother Jeff read for us this morning, what is it that Mary says? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. As we look at Luke's account here in these first two chapters about the birth of Christ, what you will see is that every character he mentions here is filled with great joy. Even one who isn't even born yet. The unborn John the Baptist in the womb of his mother leaps when Mary comes in and greets Elizabeth. And we could say the same with his father, Zechariah. He breaks out into song. Mary breaks out into song. These angels show up singing. The shepherds are filled with, at first, fear, but they're told, don't be afraid. And so they run with haste to see this great thing. And later we read about Simeon and Anna when Jesus is presented in the temple and they're filled with great joy. Why are all of these people filled with great joy? And if you are today, why are you? We might ask, what made this such a joyous occasion. This is a baby. This is the birth of a baby. Now, we get excited about the birth of babies, don't we? That's some, something to be excited about. We're happy when we hear that someone had a baby. But never to this extent. This is not just the birth of a baby, is it? Who is it who was born this day in the city of David? It is Christ, the Lord. Well, who is that? Who is that? What was it about that particular bit of news that made Mary and Zechariah, the unborn John the Baptist, Simeon, Anna, the shepherds. What was it about that little tidbit, Christ the Lord, that made them so overjoyed that day? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning. So that's what we're going to do. And this is what we find. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, after creating everything else in the universe, 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And later, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And sure enough, he had. And the result of that act was catastrophic. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But God, being rich in mercy, had a plan, and he made a promise. And to the tempter, in Adam and Eve's presence, said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now this promise of hope, what did that mean for mankind? Did it elicit good behavior? This promise of hope, no, it did not. The first man who was born in the world killed the second man who was born in the world. And later we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God determined to judge mankind, blotting him out from the face of the earth. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you know the story. Noah built an ark. And he and his family were saved. Noah built an ark. His family was saved. Is he the one? Is he the Savior who was to come? Well, in time, it was shown that Noah was not the one. The descendants of he and his sons were instructed to spread out over the face of the earth, but they rebelled and they gathered on a plain in the east and built a tower to ascend up to God. The same old problem, to be like God. And God came down in judgment, not with a flood, because he had promised to never do that again. But he confused their language, and Scripture says, From there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is Genesis 11. But what about the promise? Had God forgotten? No. In fact, it sounds like we've turned the page, and there's a new beginning here in Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. Ah, a promised one and a promised nation. Now we see 
what the Lord is doing. But when Abraham waited and waited and waited, he was already an old man when the Lord called him. At age 99, no nation, not even a son yet. God came and appeared and spoke to him again. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. You see that word offspring again? Same word from Genesis 3, isn't it? God had not forgotten, and in time, we later read, the Lord visited Sarah, Abraham's wife, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Abraham called him Isaac. Was this the one? No, this was not the one, not yet. But he had two sons, one of whom was Jacob. And Jacob was blessed. Was he the one? No, Jacob, though, had twelve sons. A great nation? No, but at least the beginnings of a great nation. This family would sojourn in the land of Egypt where they were saved by Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. Is Joseph the one? Is he the Savior? No. We read something very interesting, though. On Jacob's deathbed, he spoke to one of his sons, Judah. And he said this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So the coming one would be a savior and a king. Descended from Judah? Yes. But what about the great nation? Well, what happened in Egypt? The people of Israel were fruitful and it increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Slaves? Great nation? <laughs> that doesn't sound very great, does it? What about the Savior? What about the promised one? Well, let's see. Then the Lord said, that is to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey and Ten plagues later, they were brought out. They were indeed delivered. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. 
headed to that promised land that God had told Abraham, I'm going to bring your people back here. Everywhere you've trod, this is your land. Your people will be away for many, many years, but they'll come back here. So again, God has kept one of his promises. This, this chosen nation still had a problem. They still had a sin problem that had always been with mankind. We read, the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all that generation had done evil, and the sight of the Lord was gone. And not even Moses, the deliverer, was he the one? Well, it would be shown that Moses was not the one. He was not even allowed to go in to the promised land. He was not the one, nor was Joshua, who commanded their armies to victory as they conquered the land. And even though the people were in the promised land, they did not completely drive out the Canaanites, and this was a problem. The remnants of these Canaanites led Israel into idolatry, and so subsequent generations after Joshua became involved in idolatry. And even subjugation in their own promised land. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, but none of these were the promised one who would bring about complete victory. No, they needed a king. They demanded a king, and God acquiesced. A Benjamite named Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Outwardly, he had the looks. He had the pedigree. If the people would have chosen, this is the one that they would have chosen. But later... We find this, the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Earlier, the Lord had said to Saul through Samuel, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And someone else was anointed king, and you know who that was. It was David, about whom it had been said. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince. David King David, was this the one? Oh, what a great king. A great poet warrior. What do we read about David? What about all these nations that had been troubling God's people? And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The Lord had promised him, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people from Israel, from the hand of the Philistines, and from the hand of all their enemies. And God did so. 
And yet, it was at this point of victory after victory and finally peace that a weakness was found in King David. There was an incident with a woman. He was married. She was married. It was adultery. And David had her husband killed. No, David was not the one. But before this incident, God had spoken to him and had made another promise. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. There's that word offspring again. Who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It would not be David. It would be one of his sons. After David, Solomon reigned. The son of Solomon was Rehoboam. Abijah his son, Asa his son, Jehoshaphat his son, Joram his son, Ahaziah his son, Joash his son, Amaziah his son, Azariah his son, Jotham his son, Ahaz his son, Hezekiah his son, Manasseh his son, and on and on and on we could go. And yet, it was none of these. In fact, it was through these sons of David that things became worse. They did not walk after the ways of their father David. But they led the people into sin and idolatry. None of these proved to be the promised one, the deliverer who would defeat the serpent. Rather, Scripture says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And so off they went into exile. God removed them from the land and they were held captive under Gentile kings, pagan idolatrous nations away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. It was here that God reiterated His promise. He did not forget. He did not abandon them. But sent His prophets among them who said, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged, says the prophet Isaiah. But he later adds this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What's the problem? Pagan kings and nations? It's a sin problem. What the prophets revealed was that the promised one would come and save them, not from Gentile kings and nations, but from themselves. 
and the sin that dwelt within them. The promise was one of reconciliation with God. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And so they waited and waited and waited As they were waiting, even the prophets asked, Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And amidst the cries for help and the despair of the people, the prophet Isaiah declared, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Ah, the promise of joy returning. This, brothers and sisters, is what is happening in Luke chapter 2. It is revealed to everyone in Luke's story that this baby is the one. He's the one they've been waiting for. They've waited so long, patiently, as kingdom after kingdom has occupied their land and their city, Jerusalem. And now, this baby, he's the one born to, well, a descendant of David, Joseph. But who is Joseph? Who is he? <laughs> Is, is he a king? This is certainly not a kingly birth, is it? For that matter, a kingly upbringing? A kingly life? No, this baby would grow up. And at about the age of 30, he would begin to preach and teach. One particular Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. And he opened the scroll from the prophet Isaiah and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the response? And they rose up. And drove him out of town. And brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That was the response to the one, the promised one. As it had been written, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How could he be the one? How could he be the promised one, the Messiah, the King, this despised, rejected one? Sentenced to death by crucifixion, it appears he's anything but a savior, a victor. 
He can't even save himself. But this was all part of the plan. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore this sin curse so that we might be drawn near to God. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This was all part of the plan. This same Jesus whose birth we celebrate today, who has saved us from our sins, this is the whole story of Christmas, you see. We sometimes sentimentalize the birth of Christ and how sweet it is. And there he is, meek and mild, lying in the manger. Now let's be careful. Let's don't forget the whole story. The birth of Christ, as wonderful as it is, the incarnation, as glorious as it is, is pointless without his death and resurrection. This is the whole story, or is it? Well, the story's not finished. This same Jesus who has come into the world is coming again, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful to be able to celebrate the beginning of this story, but we are reminded today that it is only the beginning, that the story in its entirety is glorious.
We worship today because we are no longer under condemnation. But the curse has been removed by our great King. You have kept your promise. You have sent our Savior into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and took on the rejection of this world and the poverty of this world. And He did that for us. We thank You that You've kept Your promise. That the sin debt has been paid and that You see us now as Your glorious bride. We're thankful for the promise that our Lord Jesus is coming again soon. We hold that promise dear in our hearts today. And we say with great expectation and joy, come, Lord Jesus. We pray all of this in His name. Amen.